guys so much. Why don't you have a seat? Have a seat. Uh, welcome to everyone online. We're so glad that you guys are joining us from wherever you are. We know every single week we've got people from all over the world that are tuning in and connecting with us, and we are grateful for you. We know that you are a part of the Vine family, uh, and at 30% right now, we can't get everybody in this room. Uh, you are with us, and so welcome. We're so glad. And, and welcome everyone else in the room right now. Uh, it is so good to see you. Um, this is 30% of us. Have a look around the room. This is what 30% kind of feels uh, and looks like. I'm long for 50%, 75%, 130%. But we do not serve a 30% God in the name of Jesus. Can I have an amen? Like we are not expecting a 30% spirit in this moment, right? I'm not going to preach a 30% word to you. All right? You guys look like you're asleep already. That's okay. That's all right. That's all right. It's going to happen. Hey, so last week, uh, we started a, a brand new series here at The Vine. And I started last week by saying that I think this is the central word that I think God has for us as a church in the season that we're in. I said last week boldly that I feel like we're in an inflection point for the gospel in this season of our city, in this hour that we're in right now, that, that I think the church in the next couple of years has a decision to make in Hong Kong. Are we going to move forward with the gospel? Are we going to hold forward the hope of Jesus? Are we going to find ourselves finding life and boldness in the story and the narrative of the death and resurrection of Jesus? Or are we going to find ourselves shrinking back and fading out into the sidelines? The inflection point is the reality that if we don't step forward, I feel like we could lose a generation for Jesus in this hour, in this moment in our city. I feel in my spirit a passion about that. I don't want to see us lose a generation in Hong Kong. And I challenged us last week that we need to think about how we as Christians are living the gospel in this important time. I mean, are we going to live the gospel as I think it's truly designed to be lived? Or are we going to settle for a gospel that keeps the lights on in here, but shuts down the light out there? Like, are we going to stand forward and stand out? Or are we going to shrink back and are we going to fade out? And, and I argued last week that the difference for the church is that we would carry in us what we're calling a different spirit. That there might be something different in us than what we see in the world around us. That we wouldn't be weird. Hear me, Christian. I'm seeing you. That we wouldn't be weird and strange. But that we would be connected to the beauty of our city and its society, but to do so by offering something different from what's around us. We talked about last week that we are yeast and dough, not dough and dough. That in our workplaces, people might look at us and go, how come that person has joy despite the fears we're all sharing about our future? How come that one understands what forgiveness is when I can't even forgive my wife? How can this one have so much hope when there seems to be so much bad news? What is it about this one that attracts me to them? That the church will become a place where people might be drawn towards it, not because we're trying to be relevant and cool to everybody else around us, but because we're carrying something in us of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we know that this different spirit means that we're invited to living a new humanity, that actually the Christian faith is the only faith that declares that we are made new. And therefore, because we're made new, we're released into the beauty of being the human that we had always been designed to be. 
And that maybe the call of the church is to stand up in this hour and say it should look a little bit like forgiveness and love and mercy and grace and power and transformation and healing and restoration and reconciliation and all of these things. That's the way we were designed to be. So last week, I took us to a story in the Old Testament, Numbers 13 and 14, where we see Moses send out the 12 spies into the promised land. And the spies go out and they see the land, the land that God had promised them to receive. And I believe Hong Kong is our promised land. And they go out into that promised land, all the inheritances that God had for them, and they come back and they bring a report. And 10 of them say, we cannot conquer the inheritance God has provided for us. And two of them say, no, we should, for we can. And Jesus looks at those two, Caleb and Joshua, and he looks at the 10, and he says, these two carry in them a different spirit. And because they carry in them a different spirit, I'm going to release them and their generations to conquer the inheritance before them. But these 10, because they went into the promised land and did not see what I had put aside for them to see, and these 10 were so overshadowed by the work of the enemy, these 10 will not enter. And I think we as a church are standing in a moment where will we have a different spirit and inherit the land given to us, or will we find ourselves shrinking and dying in the wilderness? That's what this series is all about. We're going to take the next, this week and the next five, to tell you about what a different spirit is all about through the life of Caleb and Joshua. And I want to start today with a question for you, and it's this. What do you see? Like, what do you really see? Like, right now here in our culture and society and our city, right now here and what's going on in your life personally, what is it that you actually see? Because here's the reality. What you see and how you interpret it will shape your reality in the world that you live in. What you see and how you interpret it, how you come to perceive it and think about it will shape your reality and therefore the world in which you live. And I think the Holy Spirit is asking us as a church, will we look out into Hong Kong in this time, in this hour, and will we see what everybody else is seeing or will we see something different? So let me ask you again, what is it that you see? I want to open up the thought around what we should be seeing in our promised land by taking us to the beginning of this story in Numbers 13 this morning. Let me read this to you. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each of the ancestral tribes, send one of its leaders. And then from verse 3 onwards, it has a whole list of a bunch of leaders whose names I cannot pronounce and I will skip over. Then in verse 17, When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said this, listen to this, go up through the Negev and onto the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak or few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or is it poor? Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit from that land. For it was the season for the first ripe grapes. 
So they went up and they explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rohab to the Lib Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to the Hebron where Achamin and Shasai and Talmai is, the descendants of Anak who lived there. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Getting some history this morning? Yeah, I have no idea either, don't worry. When they reached the valley of Eskol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and some figs. That place was called the Valley of Eskol because there a cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off was from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. Moses is really wise. I mean, they're camped right here on the corner of the promised land. But rather than just go into that land with the armies and just go and suddenly kind of attack, he sends these 12 leaders from the tribes and he says, go and see what it is in the land. Note that it says here, I want you to see what is in the land before you. I think this act of seeing what is in our land particularly the land in which we are planted in at this time, is perhaps one of the most important things that Christians should be doing in this time and in this hour. I I believe actually one of the great spiritual disciplines we're invited into is the ability to take a look at what is happening around us, that we are invited with spiritual eyes to have a look at our culture, have a look at society, have a look at what's taking and see what it is that is taking place around us that we might actually rise up as a people and take an account, see the land. I I think we say this at the Vine quite a lot. Christians should be intelligent spiritual beings. That actually how we see the place is important. I I think Christians should know what's going on in current affairs. I think we should be reading the newspaper. I think we should be educating ourselves about what, what is happening socially and politically. I think it's important for us to understand what social justice issues are at work in our neighborhood. We must see, not so that we can stand back from a distance and judge the reality of what we're seeing, so that we can actually discern what the Holy Spirit is doing amongst it. That we might see the realities of what's happening in our land and align ourselves to it. One of the great gifts of being a Christ follower, as Christ followers, we are invited to evaluate the fruitfulness of the land in which we are inheriting. And if Hong Kong is that land for us, what do you see? Are you with me? The problem is, the church for many years has gotten really good at burying its head in the sand when it comes to the things that are happening around it. We kind of label some things as spiritual and some things as not. And the things that we don't think are spiritual, we leave them aside. And the things that we think are spiritual, we magnify. And I think God invites the church to open their eyes to see the wonder and the challenge of what is happening in the location they are planted in and to make a difference. So let me keep reading. It says here, that Moses says to them, do your best to bring back some fruit of the land. See, I think this is beautiful. Moses tells them to go and see, and the question is, what is it that they're supposed to be seeing? He does mention, check out the fortified cities, check out those things, have a look at that, yes. 
But actually, the emphasis is on the land itself. He says, I want you to see whether that land is fertile. I want you to see whether there is good fruit in that land. I want you to see whether we can actually build our crops there. I want you to see whether there are trees there. I mean, the emphasis of God's people going into the land is not to actually look at the cities and see how fortified they are. The emphasis is, is the land as God promised us? Is it fertile, flowing with milk and honey? And so to prove that, I want you, if you can, when you're in that land, to bring back to us some of its fruits. Bring back to us a cluster of its grapes that are in season so that we can understand what it is that we're about to inherit. Notice this, church. This is so important. I love what what Moses is doing here. Notice he doesn't say this. He doesn't say, bring me back a schematic map of Jericho. Have you ever noticed that? Like, that would be what I would have asked him to do, right? Like, hey, hey spies, like, like, find out how fortified it is, how high it is, get all the measurements and stuff so we know how to overcome the obstacles. He doesn't do that. He says, here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to bring back a map of the towns. I want you to bring back some of its fruit. Why? Because I want my people to taste the sweetness of what they're about to inherit. I want you to pass around the fruit to Israel so Israel can take it and bite those grapes and feel that sweetness in their mouths and that sweetness, oh, that the taste of the grapes would become the fuel for their fight, that they would realize that the land is exactly as God has called them to do, that it is the one that is flowing with milk and honey. And because it is, oh, we taste and see that the Lord is good. And that gives us the confidence to step into that land knowing that it is ours. He wants them to taste and know that what they're about to conquer is just the thing that he has provided for them. And church, I think this is what church is all about. I think the reason why we gather together like this on a Sunday, whether it's in this room or watching right now online, the reason why we gather like this is so that we can taste and know that the Lord is good. So that we can come together and and bite something of the fruitfulness of Jesus. That we can remind ourselves of the, of the taste, the sweetness of forgiveness, of his love and his mercy for each one of us together. That we can sing songs that declare his victory and his goodness. Why? So that we can get full? No. So that the taste of his love and his sweetness might become the fuel for our conquering of our promised land that it might actually be the reason when we leave here at the end of 90 minutes with our hearts dripping and our mouths sweet with the taste of Jesus, that we say, I want others in the city to know that taste. I want other people in this place to experience the beauty and the wonder of forgiveness and love and mercy. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good with vine on a Sunday. I go on Monday with the offer to people. Maranatha, come and see Lord Jesus. I listened to an interview with Jackie Pullinger this week. I love Jackie. And she said in her early 20s, she came to Christ and she came to realize that she had eternal life. And she says on this podcast, she's like, I was filled with such a fire because I knew what eternity was like and I wanted others to experience it. Do you see the grapes around you? Are you tasting them? the beauty is that when we gather, we can feast together the sweetness of God, but not just so that we can consume in a holy huddle, but so that it fuels our desire to see others come to Jesus. Are you with me? So then, notice what happens 
when they come back, having seen what they needed to see in the land. Verse 26 says this. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here it is, some of the fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of the Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Listen to the report. They come back from their 40 days and they give two sides to the report. First of all, there is this beautiful fruit that's in the land. It is the way God had described it to it. It flows with milk and honey. Here is some of its fruit. In other words, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. But there's this other thing in the land. It's not just the reality of God's promises. There's this other thing in the land. The people there are really, really big and scary. I mean, the, the people there are, are descendants from the Anak. These are huge people. And, and so they come back and they provide this report. They say there are grapes and there are giants. In other words, there are the promises of God in the land and there is the problem in the land. And I want you to see something really important here. All 12 of them give that same report. It's easy for us to think that Caleb and Joshua didn't give that report. That Caleb and Joshua gave a, a separate report. That maybe actually Caleb and Joshua were sleeping in the, in the camp the day that they went and spied out Jericho. You know, like Maybe they didn't see the fortified people and they didn't see the great giants in the land. No, no. All 12 of them, Caleb and Joshua included, come back and say grapes and giants, promises, and a problem. So the difference wasn't in what they saw. The difference was in how they perceived what they saw. Keep with me, church. I want to talk to you a little bit about grapes and giants. I went to welcome and I got the largest grapes that I could find. These are pretty big grapes. But I want you to notice something. Imagine if you've gone into the promised land and you come back with that. And this is the grapes. And the grapes represent the promise of the fertility of the land for generations and generations. I don't know about you, but the grapes look pretty feeble. They look pretty small, don't they? But Caleb and Joshua understood what these grapes represented. That although these grapes appear small and feeble and relatively insignificant, what was behind them was massive and huge that these were proof that the promises of God were good. And they were saying, hey, come and let us... Oh. Wow, that's really good, actually. <laughs> come and taste and know that the Lord is good. But there were giants in the land. And these giants were massive. I did the study of the Hebrew, and I did some exegetical work this past week on this passage, and I noticed this, that giants, by their very nature, are giant. That took me hours of study. That should blow your mind. If you're taking notes, write that one down. Giants, by their very nature, are giants. They are the very opposite of what a grape is all about. You cannot get a greater contrast between the smallness and the relatively feebleness of a grape and these massive giants. The giants are large for a reason. 
They're designed to be so big that they block out the light of hope for you. The giants represent the the problems that are found in the land of God's promises. And they're big and they're scary and they're massive and they're designed that way to kind of make you think that the grapes are nothing. You see, you need to understand that there are always going to be giants in the land of God's promises. And then the giants are designed by the enemy so that they would overshadow the fruitfulness, the promise of that land so much that we're tempted to give up on the inheritance altogether. Come on, church. This is a strategy of the enemy. There's always going to be giants in the land of God's promises. And those giants will so overshadow what might appear on the surface, something that is small and easy to give up on. Some of you right now, in your land, there are really big giants there for you. And those giants for us sometimes are personal and private. Things that are going on in our lives, maybe sin we're grappling with, maybe stuff that's just happened, things that we've done, mistakes we've made. Massive. And they look and they seem so overwhelming to us. And then think that giants are not just this personal, private thing, but giants are also this massive thing in society as well. And that collectively, not just personally and privately, but collectively, we're also dealing with some pretty major giants in our city in this time. And those things can be so loud and so overpowering to us. And we need to realize that giants are designed to distract us from the small but more powerful promises of God. And some of us are getting too distracted by those giants. Let me talk to you for a moment about what I call giant tactics. Hands up if you're on social media. The rest of you are lying. (laughs) Shouldn't lie in church. It's really bad. When I ask a question, you answer. No, it's okay. We're all on social media, aren't we? Here's the reality of social media. Social media is giant tactics. It's somebody's opinion magnified as loudly and as big as possible, driven to you on your feed by algorithms on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube that pick up what your personal likes are and tries to create an echo chamber of opinions that all go to either try to teach you or to drive you, to get you to spend differently, get you to think differently. It's all designed with these algorithms. It's giant tactics at work so that you would come to believe that the thing with the loudest voice that's repeated the most must be the thing that's true. Come on, church. Elections are won by this. One of my favorite social commentators, Seth Godin, he put it this way. Let me read this to you. These days, it is irrelevant if something is actually true or not. What is relevant is whether it's believed or not. And that belief is directly related to the size in which the stated fact or opinion is repeated and consumed. Giant Tactics. The bigger, the bolder, the louder, the more often, the more easily consumed, that becomes the things that people believe. Here's the reality. Those with a different spirit have the audacious belief that sometimes the truth of God comes to us in the size of grapes and not the size of giants. That usually the truth of God is revealed to us in small, imperceptible ways that the world might say, that's nothing. Look how feeble the church is. And we might say, no, we're holding on to something that actually anchors us in the promises of a reality of a new creation. Jesus would say this, you want to know what my kingdom's like? A mustard seed. 
It's not like a giant at all. It's a little bit like a mustard seed, the smallest seed in the whole of the garden. You want to know what my kingdom is really like? It's like a little piece of yeast in the giantness of dough. You want to know who I am and what I'm like? I'm the stone the builders rejected because it was too feeble and small, but on me will be the cornerstone of a new creation. You want to know how feeble the Christian faith is, how small compared to the giants? It's founded on a cross, an execution device that actually happened to the person that we believe then rose from the dead and conquered all things. Our faith in its very nature is grapes, not giants. And yet, here's the problem. We're so overwhelmed by the giants. See, here's the great challenge for us. The great challenge for us as the church in this time in the city of Hong Kong is this, that we would claim to believe in grapes, but we would actually end up listening more to the giants. That we would allow the louder voices, the bigger voices, to be the ones that determine our future, rather than the small beautiful, still voice. I love the how scripture says, would you hear the still, small voice of God in amongst the howling wind of worldly opinion? The 10 spies refused to listen to the small voice. They all came back, all 12 of them, two of them talking about grapes, 10 of them talking about giants. And here's what happens when we focus on giants in our lives. Let me show you this from verse 30. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses, and he said this, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it, a different spirit. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread a report amongst the Israelites, a bad report about the land that they explored. And they said, the land we explored will devour all those living in it. All the people we saw there were of great size. Can you not see the giants? We are too feeble. We're not strong enough. Notice this. We are not strong enough. They are stronger than we are. Moses never sent the spies into the promised land to ask them to give an account of whether they feel strong enough to take the land. He never once says, go into the land and I want you to see how you compare to the people of the land. He doesn't say, go into that place and and give an account of yourself. No, he says, go into the land, give an account of the situation of the land. Like, tell me about the promises of God. Have the promises of God come true? Have the promises of God going to be there for us? Tell me about his promises. I didn't ask you to compare yourself to the giants. When we compare ourselves to the giants, we're always going to come off feeling small, weak, and that we can't do it. They are stronger than us. I want to bring a reality check. The giants in your life, they're stronger than you. This is why it was important that Caleb and Joshua saw the giants. I think as Christians, we think that we are guaranteed a giant-free life. Just ask the early church whether they had a giant-free life. We're not guaranteed a giant-free life. In fact, we should see the giants. The difference is what we perceive about the giants. And Joshua and Caleb decided to perceive the grapes and the power of the promises over the fact of the reality of these scary giants. And that changed everything for them. And some of you in this room, you're allowing the giants to determine what your future is going to look like. And if that's true, then you are not living with a different spirit. 
And trust me, I know the giants are scary. I've experienced the giants myself. They are scary things. But I wonder whether together as a community, we might be able to stand with one another and magnify the sweetness of the grapes. I want to taste and know that the Lord is good. When was the last time you bit the grape? Who would like a grape right now? Anyone want a grape? They're really good, by the way. I washed my hands. I did actually wash my hands. Anyone else want a grape? You're having one. Okay, online, ready? Scrape's coming for you. Watch this. Oh, oh, no. Okay, all right, all right. Okay, I'm going to stop throwing grapes around. Don't worry. But I wonder what it would be like if the church was a place where you came to know the sweetness and the goodness of God. God never said to you, he never asked you whether or not that you're strong enough to do the thing that he's called you to do. God's never asked you whether or not you're strong enough to do the thing he's called you to do. See, it's not about your strength, it's about his promises. And if the church can rise up on that, I believe we will walk in a different spirit right now in this time, in this season. Now, here's the second thing that happens. And I want you to see this because it's really important. They come and they don't, they don't just first say, hey, we're, we're not strong enough. They then say this. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about what they had explored. Here's the reality. When you let the giants speak to you, you will always turn good news into a bad report. If the giants are the ones that have the dominant voice, you will always take the good news, the inheritance of God, his promises, what he's doing and how he's alive, even the message of the gospel, and we'll have a way, we'll find a way of taking good news and turning it into a bad report. And so here's the 10, and I think this is what annoys God so much. He realizes that they're turning this good news, the promised land, into this bad report, and he says, that's not the way it should be. That I invite you as my people to actually bring a good report about the good news. The challenge is, mm, mm, so often I think as Christians, we go into our workplaces and we bring a bad report of the good news. Because we're not that different from everyone else and we don't really believe in forgiveness and we're actually bitter and angry ourselves and we're cheating on our wives and we're doing all this thing and we're just like living a normal life. But we come on Sunday and we celebrate the grapes, but we don't eat them the rest of the week. And, And the Lord sees that and he says, you're like the 10, not the two. Is there a different spirit in you? And would we hear? Would we have ears to hear? Not like some condemnation, but actually an invitation into this reality of what life could truly be like, a different spirit. Would we taste the grapes again? And although that won't make those giants disappear, maybe we'll be shaping our lives on the thing that is an invitation. Look, look how Josh, uh, Joshua and Caleb put it in verse 30. When Caleb silenced the people before Moses, he said this, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we certainly can do it. See, their attitude was, we should, for we can. Right? We can, because this is God's promises. So we should, for we can. But the 10 spies were basically, we can't, so, so we won't. There's a completely different mindset based on whether they're perceiving the reality of the greats before them. We should, for we can, versus we can't, so we won't. And I wonder if I was honest with you today, which of these two are you living out? What kind of report is your life bringing about the good news of Jesus? Is it a we should, for we can report? Or is it a we can't, so we won't? 
kind of report. And this invitation is so beautiful. We should go up and take possession of land, for we certainly can do it. See, here's the reality. The report that you believe will determine the future you experience. Come on, church. I'm almost finished. Relax. The report you believe determines the future you will experience. And some of you here, here's the reality. You have a perception issue. And because of that, you have a report issue. And that report issue is determining a future issue. It all starts with, what do you see? Are you just seeing the giants and their ferocity, their size and their expanse? Are you cowering in the reality of the shadow they create? Or are you grabbing a hold, even if it looks so small and imperceptible, that still small voice, that little mustard seed, are you grabbing a hold of something and saying, I know this looks so small compared to that, but I'm going to take faith here and believe that this is the thing that I'm called to carry in this time. That we might see that, encourage that amongst us, taste and know that the Lord is good. And walk with a different spirit in this hour. So I stand before you today and I simply say this again. In your context, in your situation, with everything that's going on for you, what do you see? You'll see both grapes and giants. Which one are you going to perceive over the other? Could you stand with me? I want to pray for you. Father, we are grateful for this moment. Grateful that we stand before you, a church called by your name. And that in this important moment of history, in this important hour of our city, you're asking us, what do we see? You have not given up on this place, Lord. This is our inheritance. What a gift. We're so grateful to be living in this city in this time. So grateful to be called Christians in this moment, in this hour. Thank you, Lord. And we don't want to be a church defeated. We want to be a church alive with a different spirit, a hope offering to our city the reality of what it tastes like to be forgiven and redeemed and loved, reconciled, restored and renewed. The Holy Spirit would say to you this morning, would you taste and know that I'm good once again? And would that taste be in your mouths as you stand before the giants? I wonder whether you just open your hands just where you are, if you feel comfortable to do so. You don't have to, but it's just part of our posture that we do here at the Vine, just to welcome the Holy Spirit in and allow Him to speak to us again.
stand together just, Lord, before your presence in this moment. And Lord, we recognize the giants in our lives. I want you to take a moment, just allow the Holy Spirit to show you. Maybe you already know what your giants are. Or whatever it is that you would just experience, just see again those giants. But in seeing them, you wouldn't be overwhelmed. You would realize that they're not going to get the final say. Not despite those giants that you're aware of, God is here for you. His promises are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness to you. For He is able to change every circumstance and situation. And so in faith this morning, you come before the Lord with all of the issues and the problems and the challenges. And He says, my son, my daughter, what do you see? Do you see all those giants? And are you listening to their voice? Are you allowing them to define your future? Or instead, do you see me? Do you see what I'm doing? Do you see how I'm restoring and renewing you? Do you see the hope that is still there? Do you see the love that you once lost or forgot about? Do you, do you see it again? For some of you, your giants are things that you've done in the past. And those giants loom over you, trying to define who you are in the present and your future. I feel like the Holy Spirit is saying to anyone in this room, if that's the case, that's not, your, your past does not determine your future. I feel like the Holy Spirit is saying there's freshness for you this morning. For some of you, it's been a while since you've tasted and known that the Lord is good. I want you to take the time as we respond now just to invite him to be with you and just to taste him again. The sweetness of salvation, the beauty of forgiveness and mercy. Allow that just to wash over you, forgiveness of your sin, strengthening of your hands for the work that he's called you to do. Lord, we pray that grapes would burst forth in this room as we respond now to all that your spirit is doing in this place. We thank you for this.